episode 70, bonus edition, interview with Katherine Reddick. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educators podcast to start your day feeling empowered. Hi, Elite Educators. This is Gretchen from Always a Lesson. I'm here to empower you to reach your potential, and that is why I refer to you as Elite, because only an Elite Educator would take time to invest in themselves by listening to a podcast like this to help hone their craft. Well, today is a special day because we have a guest appearance. That's right. Every five episodes or so, I like to bring on someone who's a mover and a shaker in education, and today is no exception. I want to help you reignite your passion and your potential by learning from another elite educator named Katherine Reddick, and she's got one empowering message. Before we dive into the interview, I do want to share a little bit of her background with you so you know what to expect She is currently an elementary school principal. She's been in education for about 17 years now. And really why I wanted to share her story with you is it's one of those heartbreaking, ends in victory kind of stories. Truly powerful against all odds. She overcame huge obstacles and now she gets to work with kids every day. She even released a book called Access Denied, A Woman's Journey to Access the American Dream. Um, And we talk a little bit about that in this interview, but it really gives deeper insight into her life growing up in foster care and then how as an adult she's working to stop child abuse and reform the foster care system. It's so enlightening to me because I've never worked that closely with students in that type of scenario, but I know it exists quite often actually and can be hushed and can also be the hardest challenge in education to work with a child in that situation because it is so transient and so much red tape and within seconds that child could be gone and my heart just broke as I heard her explain how she felt as one of those children and now that really fuels her compassion and her desire to help children in the same situation and she's even appeared on The View and Huffington Post Live after she wrote an obituary about her abusive mother. Can you believe it? I mean, her life story and journey is just full of challenge. And she has become so successful and humble and enthusiastic. I mean, if I went through what she did, I certainly would not have such a positive outlook. (laughs) I would be scorned. I would be angry. And she is just not that way. I mean, she has totally been one of those success stories and it was such an honor to get to know her better. So now that I've shared a little bit about her story, let's tune in and hear her share about her life and how she wants you to be part of the journey with her. Well, hey, Catherine, thank you so much for being a guest here on the Empowering Educators podcast. 
Elite educators around the world are just really eager to hear from you. So I want to dive right into hearing a little bit more about you. So why don't you start and share with us your current position in the educational field? Yes, I'm a school principal, elementary grade. Um, I've been a principal for this is my fourth year, I've been an assistant principal, and I've been a classroom teacher for over 15 years. So I've got a lot of background in education in, in Nevada, California, and in Texas. That's amazing. My goodness, which state was your favorite? I'm still deciding, but I really <laughs> like Texas, and I love California, too. So. Well, it's probably the weather. Yes, definitely the weather in California can't be beat. <laughs> well, as a principal, what would you say is, you know, the most valuable lesson you've learned so far? Um, I think making sure that the kids trust you mm -hmm. is very valuable, making sure the teachers trust you. Um, I think that, and the parents, I think trust is about the most important thing you can do in education. I think you're right. So how do you go about establishing that? I think you set some guidelines for safety, for school safety. I think establishing um, a great school safety plan where everyone feels safe on the campus, the parents are reassured that their children are safe, helping the kids understand how to behave and how to um, resolve conflict mm -hmm. is very important. And helping the teachers understand that they can come to me without being criticized and, and feel safe to say, you know, this isn't working for me. What, what other ideas do we have? And then we get together and we brainstorm and figure out what solutions, because every child is different. Every situation is different. Mm -hmm. Every year, classroom dynamics are completely different. So problem solving together is probably the best way to, to build that trust. So with your open door policy, do you just state to teachers to come or is it more of the energy that you're giving out that lets them know they can feel welcome to chat with you? The only thing I state to them is come to me when you're when you need me. Okay. And and that's what they do. Of course, we have our staff meetings, but um, <clears throat> basically my door is always open to them. We do a lot of work online. If they need me, they can contact me online. They can text me. Everybody has my cell phone number, oh, my wow. text number. <laughs> so open communication, that's what it's all about. Well, we talk a lot about, you know, what makes an educator great. So since you're able to get in and see lots of different teachers, you know, different grade levels, what would you say is a descriptor of a great teacher? Uh, for me, it's, it's one who is very kind with the kids, but also firm and consistent. Uh, building that classroom management, you cannot teach no matter what a great teacher you are, you're not a great teacher unless you have the kids under control and they're all actively engaged in the lesson. And uh, that, that to me is the key to being a successful teacher, being well organized and having your lesson plan ready and, you know, really having an idea of what you're going to do and how you're going to um, encounter when you encounter uh, problems and kids having challenges, how are you going to address those? So it's anticipating ahead of time what you're going to do and then implementing it when it happens. Yeah, being prepared is half the battle, right? <laughs> it really is. Well, this show kind of hits a couple different teachers. We've got new teachers, some that are in transition or distress, and then, of course, teacher leaders. So if you had to pick one bucket of those to provide a piece of advice, who would it be and what would you say to them? Wow. Um, I think the new teachers have so much to offer our experienced teachers. And I think sometimes they're afraid to or intimidated to. 
And I think the new things that they're learning in, in their education programs is so important for our, our um, other teachers to also be aware of. So I would I would think bringing their ideas up front for everyone to look at and consider is going is would be very important. That's good. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you one more question before we really dive into your background. You know, being a leader is great, but you also have to learn from someone. So who would you say is your current mentor? I read a lot of books that help me understand the system. But right now, my teachers are my mentor. I look at what's happening in their classrooms, and I love their energy and their commitment to their kids. So I use them as my mentor right now. And I think every school I've worked at, it's a completely different mentor. One time it was a principal. Uh, one time it was a staff, another teacher. So every every time I move positions, I find a new mentor. And it always comes back down to the classroom teacher, though, because they're the ones that are um, inspired by the kids. They know what's happening on the campus, in their classrooms. They know what's happening with the curriculum. So they inspire me to change and to move along and um, keep changing with the with the needs of the campus. That's great. Yeah. Well, really, the reason I wanted to share your story is because your background really allows you to have a different perspective on helping and shaping kids. So feel free to just start from the beginning, share with us what you're comfortable sharing, and then I'll just kind of chime in with questions as we go. Okay. Um, my background has been, um, I was raised in the foster care system, and when my education experience was pretty painful. Um, one, because we moved around quite frequently, um, getting picked up and just not knowing when you were going to leaving a campus. You didn't get to say goodbye to your friends or your teachers or take any of your school supplies with you. So that was painful. It was also painful to have to be the new person in the classroom all the time and having the teachers look down upon you um, because of your where you were. When I was in foster care, that happened quite a bit because we were so... We were so um, uncivilized, should I say. A lot of kids go through foster care are pretty much uncivilized, and that's a cold way to put it. But we don't know behavior skills. We don't need so we don't know social skills. Um, really, you're dealing with really raising a child from the beginning when you get these kids. A lot of times. So uh, it takes a lot of commitment on teachers' parts and a, and a greater understanding of what they need. Speaking of what they need, so did you feel like your education was piecemeal? Like you'd go to one state or one county and you'd get a little bit of this topic and then you'd be moved and now you're learning something different. So you really had these half skills versus, you know, a strong understanding. Yes. And I didn't even realize, realize I didn't have those skills. Um, school to me was just a place that I had to go to. Yeah. Um, I didn't understand the purpose of education. And so that's really, really important for me to instill in teachers and parents and kids is what that purpose is for their education. Otherwise, they're just in a building. And that sense of belonging is so critical for all kids, but especially kids raised in foster care and in, in families that are dysfunctional. And so it sounds like you couldn't even be your own advocate. We really need everyone else in the system to stand up for you because, well, one, you're a child, but two, you didn't even know what you didn't know. So what would you say to those involved here? What do we need to do? Well, I think we do need an advocate for every child in the foster care system. And as educators, I think we can, we are advocates for them. 
but we're also, it's a little bit conflictive because a lot of times we get too close and we know what's happening a um, little too closely and we get caught in the conflict that can happen between foster parents and, and families and parents who are abusing their kids. And so that's, we need outside sources. Everybody in this country need to step up and be an advocate. There should not be a child in the foster care system who does not have an adult advocating for them. What do you think you really needed? What would be your number one thing you wish someone had stepped in to help you with? Um, <clears throat> feeling um, safe, um, feeling like I could count on something or someone. Mm -hmm. um, I think being a foster child, you are completely alone. And that is, that's a scary feeling. And it goes with you your entire life. It doesn't just stop when you turn 18 right. because you have no family. And you go through your life experiences without a family as well. So getting these kids adopted would be so important. One of the things that I really do appreciate happened was um, kids would invite me to their homes for dinner or to spend the night. And that was just such a blessing, such a treat to have that experience, that that feeling of sitting at the table and eating with a family and and spending the night with people where they weren't yelling and cursing and right. uh, craziness, you know. Well, speaking of craziness, I'm sure there were other foster kids living with you. So how involved are the foster parents in education or day-to-day or, -day or just investing in you in general? Um, most of the time, they're not. Um, there are some really good foster parents out there. I was able to have one for one year and that was it. But I spent um, over 12 years, most of those years in permanent foster care. And um, I signed all the kids report cards every time they came through. Ten of those years were in an orphanage. So um, they didn't even look at our report cards. They just showed me how to sign them. And I had the best handwriting. So I was the one that signed all the kids report cards. Oh, my gosh. No one went to parent conferences. Nobody, um, nobody cared. I mean, it just breaks my heart to, to hear that this is your story. And I mean, how, what does that do to your self-concept at such a young age? Oh, that that's something that's a life struggle. Um, you feel like you are completely worthless and um, you have no sense of who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you really try to become whoever anyone wants you to become because you don't know anything. You don't know any better. So you try to please everyone, and as you go through life doing that, you realize that that doesn't work for you either. So the, the sense of self and purpose and kindness to yourself, that self-talk was so horrible for me. And I had to learn that the things I said to myself was really what was coming from other people, but then it, it was so embedded in who I believed I was. Right. So I had to really get over that. Well, I'm thinking the big push right now is to get kids college and career ready, but you weren't even ready for that. You really just needed love and, like you keep saying, safety. I mean, where do teachers prioritize when you get a child like this who really needs some of those basic needs met before we can even think, you know, common core, whatever standards the state is using? Mm -hmm. That is so true. Um, I think, and I go back to Maslow's um, hierarchy, hierarchy of and if we don't feel safe, yes, they, we had food, but we didn't feel safe at all. Uh, and that's the way most foster kids feel. 
um, in the classroom, you're daydreaming all the time rather than, I mean, education, you're just like, you're reliving what happened the day before or that morning or, you know, where's your family or wonder where your brother is or your sister is. And um, so really until we can help the kids with their, uh, we need emotional and mental health services for these kids too. We were just left floundering and not, no one ever to talk to about those experiences. So I think school counselors now are uh, much more equipped and we have many more of them to support these kids. But, um, yeah, I think in the classroom, what teachers can do is have a check in, check out system with someone special for each child that they have like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do that with the kids at my campus. I check in with them. I have a check in, check out where they can come visit me in the morning or I just walk up to them, see how they're doing. Um, I can usually tell by their body language if they're struggling that day. Mm-hmm. So all the tips can really um, tell a teacher what to do and what to look for. There were times in the classroom where I knew a child just needed some sleep and food. So that's what I let them do. I'd find them a place in the classroom, <clears throat> excuse me, and I would let them sleep for a couple hours because that's what they needed. And so what protocol is established on the school level when you get a child who's from the foster care system, or is there not nothing like no, go see the counselor, let's do some testing. Is there anything like that set up? Um, no, and, and the reason is it takes a long time. We have to go through steps in education before we get a child tested. Mm-hmm. And so um, usually the children are not here long enough, by the, and that's what oh. big, big issue in education. Um, they might be only with us for three months. By that time, we're just getting them starting to go through. We've assessed them enough to know what their needs are, but then they're gone because the school has no, no idea where they are. They just all of a sudden one day they're gone. And why are they moving so much? Is it just the foster care parents want something different or, or what causes that change? Yeah, it's many things. A lot of times they just move from foster home to foster home because the placement isn't correct or because um, in our case, um, siblings were seven siblings. So they um, put us all back together and sent us to an orphanage. Um, sometimes they try um, to visit at home and then the parents take them. And move across state. Um, that happened to us quite a bit with our mother. And sometimes the parents had a lot of control. They can request a change. Um, they feel like the foster parents are getting too close to their child. Um, and that's really and So it's a catch-22. You want the foster parents to care about the kids and help them be a member of the family. But then when they get too close, oftentimes they're moved because of that. Yeah, that threat. So what does that do to your psyche? You've got parents or adults fighting over you, and you're not sure whose team am I supposed to support? Yeah, I think um, that that would be really, really challenging. And I think um, it was really challenging um, in our situation. And I'm sure this is still happening. When we go home for visits, um, we were just uh, terrorized about um, calling our foster parents, mom or dad, or accidentally mm-hmm. calling them that, um, not wearing the clothing that um, our mother wanted us to wear um, because we used other clothing that she didn't purchase for us. Um, it's it's a it's a terrible situation for kids to be in. And then what happens when they do age out? When I guess eighteen is what you consider the age out time. Right, right. And aging out, unfortunately, we do a horrible job getting kids prepared. 
Uh, when they turn 18, they leave with whatever money they've saved, which oh, is gosh. very little. Yeah. Um, I, I left with $17 and change in one box of what I owned. Um, but I didn't have a black garbage bag. Most kids leave with a black garbage bag. I got a box, so I was really excited. Um, but there is no plan for them. Um, and that's, that's, it's getting a little bit better now because they see that these kids are going right from the system into jails and right. on the streets and they need to fix that. But, um, still it's not, we're not trained for job skills. Those last four years, if you're in permanent foster care, in my opinion, you should be spending from 14 to 18 uh, getting your getting a job skill, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is. But it's got to be you can't be working in a restaurant, washing dishes. It's got to be a real job skill like plumbing and contracting. And um, there's so many other areas you don't need college for, but you can go out and survive and make a good living. I mean, you did great, though. You're the principal of a school. So what was so different about your situation? Oh, that's, you know, it was an, a transformation um, over years. It took me the first 20 years just to um, re-raise myself. I literally had to learn what I needed to do and re-raise myself. Um, the next 20 years was really educating myself Um I feel like I'm successful, but I still have so much more to do. Um, and I've got a huge amount of college debt. I mean, when you go back to school at my age, no one pays for you. You don't get right. those scholarships. So, um, yeah, I've got my education. Now. I've got my Ph.D. I've got all these certifications. But now I'm going to live the rest of my life trying to pay off all the college debt. But the fact that you you put yourself in this position is so great because you were able to overcome those feelings that you had as a child of like, where do I belong? Who am I? You know, I I mean, do you still battle with those feelings and insecurities or do you feel like you've learned how to cope better? Well, I think both. I've learned how to cope better, but there are always um, there's always that fear that you don't belong and you don't fit in. Um, I don't think that ever goes away. I think what you do is you self-talk yourself through it and help yourself understand that you do belong and that you are competent and that you um, are successful. So I think you're I think for me throughout my life, I've been my worst enemy. So learning to love myself and believe in myself. Hmm, That's good. Well, I know you've written a couple of books. Let's talk about them. Your most recent is Access Denied. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me about it. It's my journey um, through the foster care system, life with an abusive parent or two parents originally. And then, of course, my father left when I was five years old, so we didn't ever see him again. But uh, it was about being abused by our parent, by my mother mostly. And then um, what life was like going in the foster care system and how we were pulled and moved and um, I had a 16-month-old brother who was beat to death in his foster home. Um, yeah, it was it was bad. And um, then they put us in an orphanage where there was f- so much physical abuse of kids and sexual abuse of kids, oh, okay. and the violence was just as bad as it was with our mother. Um, and then we were forced to go visit with her where she on um, every other weekend we'd go have visits with her. She didn't have a place for us. We slept in her office and there were six of us then. Um, there was no kitchen facilities. We went to the bathroom down the hall because it was office building. Um, and she kept us up all night yelling and screaming and beating us and drinking. And 
and they knew and they just let us go visit her no matter what it was terrible I mean, you are truly a survivor, and physically, mentally, I'm just in shock that you're so wholesome, and, and what I mean by that is you seem like you have finally really found yourself and were able to really live to your potential, but I worry about maybe your brothers and sisters or other kids who just can't ever get to that place. How did you get there? Yeah, that you know, that's what breaks my heart, and that's why I wrote the book. Because, um, in my opinion, nobody is helping these kids. I call them America's hidden children um, because no one's helping them. And how I got to the place was trial and error and the grace of God, I think, because um, and I hate to say that because that means grace. God doesn't have grace on the other ones who didn't make it. So I don't know that it's that as much as it is just never giving up. Um, Boy, I've been beat down so many times. I can't even tell you. But getting up again and saying, no, this is not who I am. This is not who I will. You cannot call me these things. That's not who I am. And so a lot of it was just self-determination to make sure that I kept growing and, and never stopped believing and that I could be better. And you had mentioned a lot of kids when they age out, you know, they go to jail or whatever. And I can see how that would happen because all they ever see in front of them, or at least from your situation, is violence or abuse and so how were you able to say this is not normal this is not who I want to be even though it was in front of you all the time yeah that was I mean I was totally raised and we raise our our foster children to be institutionalized that would have been my easiest direction but for me it was also so fearful it's scary after what I saw in the orphanage and how many kids were um, abused all the time Boys, being in a prison environment just scared me to death. Mm-hmm. So my my purpose, and this is so sad, the, my whole goal in life when I turned 18 was to stay out of prison and stay off the streets. Mm-hmm. And however I had to do that was what I was going to do. And that's not what that's not what the American dream is about. No. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. So my book Access Denied it tells about that. It also tells about my process of recovery and how I um, kept going and going. Even as an adult, I struggled with so many things, but I finally did make it. And I finally am ready now to, to say, okay, these are the things that have to change in the system. My book is not just a memoir. It's about um, themes that in, in the book that I took apart and said, okay, now as an organizational psychologist, these are the things that we must do to reinvent the foster care system and massive reform nationwide. And so many stakeholders are involved in that. I mean, I don't want teachers at the school level to feel they don't have a part to play because they could be the the life changer here. Right. And and I think more and more teachers do feel empowered. Um, But, yeah, we just, as teachers, I tell teachers all the time, If you feel like social services is when you call social services and they won't come, which is frequently happens, we call a lot of times and they don't have time or they come and they say, oh, we're just going to dismiss it. Um, It's unsubstantiated. And we know the children are being abused and we keep going. I just say, you know what, let's just call the police and have them. And I tell people that Um, and parents, if they have neighbors, they'll come to us and say, well, this parent is driving drunk with their child at night. And I just say, you know what? You need to get on the phone and call 911. Don't wait and go through the the, the hotline yeah. because the hotline is um, sometimes not very effective in our country. And um, 
it takes a long process. You're going to sit on the phone a long time. They have online now, but you're going to do the online application, which is forever. Mm-hmm. And then when they go um, to the family, they don't always keep it confidential. And uh-huh. so they always say it's a, it's a school. The school did it. Well, that's easy to narrow down the school to the teacher. Right. And then who's the enemy. And then you have the, you, you're not helping the child. So um, a lot of times I'll just say, you know what, if you're not getting help from social services, you need to get on the phone and call the police. And if it's an emergency, you always just go 911. Yeah, that's great advice. I know your school day is starting, but I wanted to give you a chance to just share anything else that that you wanted teachers or educators around the world to know. Uh, I think as educators, we have there are so many of us. If we work together and we team up and we get our unions behind us, to really make this a passionate um, consideration. This is part of our education. These kids are being impacted and negatively impacted by their life um, and that they don't have those life choices. So we have to stand up for them. So I'm hoping educators will take a stand at their schools and their communities and find out what we can do to unite and help our kids. That's great. Well, where can we connect with you if we have questions or we want to snag your book? What would you say? Well, my book is available on Amazon and and bookstores, um, but Amazon is probably the easiest. Um, You can also reach me. um, My website is save us to number two, S-A-V-E-U-S number two at our dot com. I'm sorry, dot com. uh, Save us to dot com. Or you can reach me, Catherine Reddick at yahoo.com. Holy cow. Isn't that just an amazing story? I really encourage you to connect with Catherine. We had such a short time together because she was getting ready for the school day, and I could have talked to her forever just to hear more about her insight and help me better reach my kids. But I can tell you she is so thoughtful and genuine that if you ever wanted to reach out to her and ask her opinion that she would be willing to share it with you. So don't be shy. Reach out to her on social media or her email address or what have you and ask her whatever questions you have. I mean, she's open to to share more of her story but also share techniques that you could use in a school system um, to really help your students that need it. So I hope that this episode was truly empowering for you and opened your eyes like it did me. But thank gosh for someone like Catherine, right? Like I just want a huge round of applause for her because she not only overcame such harsh conditions as a child, but she made something of herself that is so selfless. She's able to really give back to the community, even though she probably, more than any of us, really needs to be poured into to try and help ensure that She does know her self-worth and knows the impact she has and the importance that her life has on others and those around her. But she just takes that energy and flips it around and pours it into somebody else. Um, She's quite a wonderful person and I'm honored that she's in our profession and making such a difference. Make sure you go to alwaysalesson.com and click on podcast. Get all the show notes. You can get all her contact information there and, and details on how to connect with her Maybe you can join the mission, too, to help children in our foster care system. All right, Elite Educators, that is a wrap for this week's special edition interview with Katherine Reddick. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered.
podcast is sponsored by the Educators Podcast Network, a podcast network that encourages you to think about your profession and succeed in the world of education. Whether you're a first-year educator or a seasoned veteran, there is a podcast for you. All of the shows are produced by educators who want to shape education through meaningful discussion and content. So head on over to edupodcastnetwork.com for more details.